I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Welcome to Vet Sessions. I'm Dr. Omar Khan, your host of today. And I'd like to welcome Dr. Cheyenne Sharif, who's here to speak with us about avian influenza. Dr. Cheyenne Sharif earned his DVM degree from the University of Tehran and a PhD from OVC. His area of interests include vaccine development against diseases of chickens, including avian influenza viruses. Dr. Sharif was a university leadership chair from 2017 to 2020 and was inducted as a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences in 2022. He was appointed as OVC's Associate Dean, Research and Graduate Studies in 2019, and was recently seconded to serve as the Interim Associate Vice President, Research at the Agri-Food Partnership. Welcome, Dr. Sharif. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks so much for taking time on a busy schedule to, to spend a few moments with us. Oh, you're most welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you. Our usual question to hosts uh, is, you know, to tell us a bit about their career path. How did you become a veterinarian? How did you end up in Guelph and at OVC as well? So would you share some of that with us? Oh, of course, by all means. Happy to do that. Except for one very important piece that I'm not going to be sharing. And those oh. are dates. Oh, right. well, well, I, I, I completely understand. <laughs> no, I'm actually saying it jokingly. So in 1985, I, be- I became uh, a DVM student back back in Iran, back in my home country of Iran. Mm-hmm. And the reason I became interested in veterinary medicine was that I always w- was quite interested and intrigued by biology. Uh, from very early stages of my, my life, I began basically dissecting anything that I would find right. um, in, in our backyard and yeah. sometimes you know v- very close to my home. And um, many of them included, for example, insects, frogs, and things of that nature. Yeah. So I became quite an expert in dissecting frogs. Mm. And the closest thing that I could find you know, to my interest in, in anatomy was basically veterinary medicine. So okay. I, I began my veterinary medicine degree in 1985, graduated in 1991. Yeah. And I was quite intrigued by uh, the phenomenon of disease resistance in domestic animals, both in cattle and also in chickens. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, I became interested in Merrick's disease. It's a disease in chickens. Yes. It's caused by a herpes virus. Uh, I would say a close or perhaps, yeah, a close relative of uh, the virus that causes chicken pox in humans. Right. It's the same family of viruses and it causes um, tumors in chickens. But some chickens are highly susceptible and some chickens are highly resistant to the disease. So I became Mm. very interested in this phenomenon and I started looking for places that would accept me as a student to do my graduate degree in Guelph. There was no chicken research, but there was bovine research and uh, uh, there was bovine research specifically looking at um, interactions between genetics and disease resistance. So I came to Canada in 93 to pursue a PhD degree in the area of bovine immunogenetics and the rest is history. Right. I graduated. I had no intention of uh, staying in Guelph, but then I stayed in Guelph and yes. uh, I became a faculty member uh, uh, several years ago in 2001. And I've been here in Guelph ever since as a faculty member. Oh, amazing. So you, that's interesting. You came straight from uh, Iran to, to the University of Guelph. 
All right, so I'm guessing based on your, your journey timeline, not much clinical practice, just straight into research, yeah? I, I did actually practice poultry, poultry health for a couple of years or so. Yeah. Um, it was between 91 to 93 that oh, okay. I practiced poultry. And it was, it, it was a very interesting experience, to say the least. Yeah. It gave me a, a very interesting impression of how things are done. Uh, with respect to population health and health management of populations as opposed to individual medicine, right. which really opened my eyes to, you know, a number of things, especially, you know, the importance of epidemiology, the importance of infectious disease and how they could impact productivity of animals. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, coming from a, a more companion animal practice, um, it's certainly the, the, the interesting divergence in, in the, the veterinary medicine, that, that different you know, disciplines practice, right? But it's always good to have that that open experience and conversation. Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, when I speak to some of my students, I would say that veterinary medicine really opened my eyes because it made me um, understand and comprehend better how phenomena, mm -hmm. uh, biological phenomena work. It, it, biological phenomena don't work in silos. There yeah. are so many different aspects and facets to a biological phenomenon. And that was really eye-opening for me to first understand veterinary medicine and then try to understand some of these biological phenomena, yeah. such yeah. as, for example, you know what I described, uh, the, the association between genetics and resistance to yeah. infectious disease. Right. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. It's always interesting to hear how we end up, you know, where we are. That's true. And you can never imagine that, you know, just life has its own path. just like water flowing down something. It finds its way. Absolutely. Yeah. Serendipity. Yes, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so some of our listeners may remember uh, that we visited avian influenza last year with Dr. Brian Stevens. Um, and that was you know, probably more than 12 months ago. So can you just give our listeners again uh, just a quick overview of the transmission of the virus and, and, and again, why is that virus important to, to I guess, to us or, or to, to avian and, and poultry veterinarians? Yeah, so I think, you know, over the last probably 12, uh, 12 months or so, things have changed. Some of the things that um, um, we thought, um, you know, existed 12 months ago, they no longer exist. Mm. And some of the things that we had no idea could happen, they did actually right. happen. So maybe a couple of things, you know, that were quite surprising in some respect that did actually happen over the last year or so. Number one was that last year, in November of last year, we started seeing massive die-offs of um, sea lions, for example. Really? Marine mammals in, in Peru and in Chile. And mm. that was really a big surprise. Mm. That has actually continued to this day. So right. we still have die-offs of marine mammals, oh, no. which is quite disconcerting, yeah. which means that the virus is, it seems to be adapting to mammals. Mm. Last year, we thought that maybe, you know, things we are going to see an optic of cases among avian species. We didn't actually fortunately see those, oh. um, those cases going through the roof. However, we still have some level of activity of the virus here in Canada and across yeah. the globe. So it's not completely gone. And I don't really think that it will be completely gone anytime soon. Mm. But like I said, you know, what we've seen so far, which has been, I would say, quite concerning for many of us, is the fact that mammals seem to be also susceptible to the virus and they seem to be catching the virus. And not only catch the virus, they can also die of the virus, yeah. such as, for example, like I said, sea lions. But aside from sea lions, we've also seen um, domestic animal species like as an example, dogs and cats also catching the virus. Mm. And that's also quite concerning because sea lions 
as, as hard as it may sound, ecologically speaking, sea lions dying may not uh, pose a significant and direct public health threat to humans, but dogs and cats catching the virus could actually cause significant yeah. public health um, concerns and threats to humans. Yeah. So just coming back to that, and I remember, you know, back at that podcast, they were suspicious, and I think had, had just recently confirmed, yeah, uh, a couple of um, fox pups, you know, being yep. exposed at that point. And it's interesting here that now marine mammals are being affected. So how how is it being transmitted from the from the avian population into this, you know, this uh, aquatic pup? So I, I wish I had a very good answer <laughs> for it because you know a number of things that had come to to mind for a lot of us who don't necessarily understand wildlife biology was that maybe you know. Uh, some of the avian species that are like seabirds, mm-hmm. like, you know, pelicans, for example, yeah. because pelicans also had major die-offs, you know, around the same time in Peru. So one mm. of the things that could 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 have happened was that maybe pelicans were dying and then sea lions were consuming those pelicans. Mm. But then after some period of time, we discovered that, you know, Pelicans, even if they die, sea lions are not necessarily scavenging animals. Yeah. So they don't, you yeah. know, chew on dead animals. So there must have been some other ways of transmission. Could it be through, for example, aerosolization of the virus? If that is the case, then there must have been significant amounts of virus burden, you know, in the sea, in the yes. ocean, that upon aerosolization, <laughs> it could have uh, tra- traveled long distances and causing uh, morbidity and mortality among those those animals. Mm-hmm. So maybe you know, sea lions are also quite susceptible. That's also the other part of the equation. Right. So and the other part of the equation is that maybe sea lions act as colonies of animals. So they have close proximity to one another, and as a result of that, maybe you know they rub their snout against another animal's snout, yeah. and then you know they catch the virus that way. Yeah. I think you know that does actually require further investigation. But you know, no matter what it is. Um, you know, the concerning part of this whole thing is the fact that mammals appear to be susceptible, not susceptible to the same extent that avian species are susceptible to Mm -hmm. this virus. Nevertheless, susceptibility of mammals is a warning flag, is a major warning flag for us. Yeah. And and I'm not sure if you've teased or any research has teased down to this, but is it the same... Or uh, is it the same variant that, that we're finding in mammals and avian species? Or has it changed or is it adapting, you said? It, it, it hasn't really. Uh, so it's the same variant or mm-hmm. the so-called clade of virus. Okay. It's the same clade of virus. Yeah. But the virus is changing. The question is, is it changing certain, let's say, genomic sequences, genetic information? And because of those changes now, it's becoming more adapted to mm-hmm mammals that part we don't really know yeah. if that has actually occurred or this is just because of the fact that there's just too much virus in the environment and uh, the animal catches the virus and then it shows morbidity yeah, and just mortality heavy, heavy caused by right interesting well well that's new to me too i didn't realize that um that it's spreading to to, to species such as that i mean i knew about the, the you know the, the dogs and cats to some degree um, and, and would you say that's on an uptick as well in, in terms of dogs and cats? Like, how do we, as a as a private practitioner, how would we be suspicious about that or go recommend testing? So at the moment, it seems that I call it the peace time because mm. we haven't really seen any new cases of dogs and cats in Canada. Okay. A, a few months ago, there were, I, I believe if I'm not mistaken, over 40 cases of cats, oh, wow. domestic cats, feral cats, and so forth, mm. catching the virus and actually dying off the virus right. 
interestingly enough, all of those cases were basically dispersed in Poland. It okay. wasn't as if there was one area of infection and yeah. and cat to cat infection. It appeared that they were all over Poland. Right. Uh, I haven't really checked to see if there's been more work done on epidemiology of the virus yeah. and whether or not you know if we have a better understanding of how this virus jumped mm. long distances to go from one cat to another cat. Yeah. The other thing that was also quite disconcerting was the fact that some of the cats were basically as essentially in indoor cats uh, indoor yeah. cats there were not outdoor cats there were not feral cats so you can also ask the question how could an indoor cat catch the virus could yeah. it catch the virus from its uh, owner um the reality is that the owners were virus negative so right. i think you know the jury is still out yeah, as to so how those cats got the virus yeah yes and I, actually as you mentioned that now i did remember reading on scott weiss's blog uh, about that particular incident, yeah, and the questions were mostly unanswered, as you just um, as you just mentioned. Uh, yeah, there still is a bit of a puzzle and a mystery. Yeah, interesting. But you said right now the time of peace in terms of the virus, so so that's good. And is it is it perhaps weather related, colder weather, so less chance of spread? Or so that's also you know another interesting question because in the past we would have said that avian influenza doesn't have any seasonality, mm. unlike human seasonal flu viruses. Yes. So the viruses that we are talking about as part of avian influenza virus families, they're quite different from the, the so-called H1 and H3 viruses that mm. infect humans. So th there are two types of, there are two major families of influenza viruses in humans, influenza A and influenza B. Mm -hmm. So when we get a, a flu shot, our flu shot contains both yeah. A and B. Avian influenza viruses are type A viruses. Mm -hmm. So does it matter? Well, to some extent, I guess, you know, for virologists and for someone like myself, yes. you know, it does matter. But for the public, yeah, probably it doesn't really matter a whole lot. Mm -hmm. However, um, I can also say that the subtype of viruses that um, uh, cause um, the so-called highly pathogenic virus infections mm -hmm. are quite different from seasonal influenza viruses that cause disease in humans. Human influenza viruses are quite seasonal. So mm -hmm. we are going to see probably a surge, an uptick in number of cases in in Canada over the next probably couple of weeks, probably, you know, by December or so, we are going to see yeah. influenza season in full fledge. Yeah. In case of chickens or avian species, up to, I would say, two years ago, we would have said there is no seasonality. Mm -hmm. However, because this new virus seems to have adopted some sort of a seasonal pattern of distribution, we can say with some degree of confidence that in springtime, usually around March, April, we are going to see an uptick. Up to, yeah. And also in August, late August, early September, we are going to see another oh. uptick. Uh, right now, we are still in the middle of one of the season of avian influenza in Canada. Yeah. Ontario hasn't actually been significantly impacted, but if you look okay. at BC, um, last week and the week before, we saw quite a few cases coming up positive in BC, also Alberta, uh, to some extent Quebec. But yeah. Ontario seems to have been sort of immune, at least from the point of view of poultry uh, outbreaks. Right. It seems to have been kept immune yeah. to, to those, at least for this season. Okay. And then could that have some sort of uh, benefit to the biosecurities that we observe here versus other provinces? Or is it sort of standard across the board for the most part? It's it's usually standard across the board, yeah. and and the other thing that you know we need to consider is the fact that uh, I would say for the most part this virus seems to be 
uh, transmitted from uh, wild birds mm -hmm. and migratory birds. So as yeah. a result of that, you know, it's it's sort of hit and miss mm. in terms of you know which farms are going to catch it and which farms are won't catch the virus. Right. Uh, so that's that's one aspect. The other aspect to to this is that um, there is some level of farm to farm transmission. So if the virus is introduced by migratory birds, then the virus may jump from one farm to another farm. So maybe not. We are, we've been so lucky here yeah. in Ontario that there's been no migratory birds, you know, landing here having enough virus to infect poultry right. farms. Yeah. Maybe that's that's the case. Yeah. But I'm not quite sure if biosecurity has played a significant role mm. in preventing transmission from wild birds. Yeah. But when it comes down to farm-to-farm -farm transmission, then yes, absolutely, yeah. biosecurity is going to play a significant role. Right. Interesting. And in terms of the global situation, then what's what's happening in the rest of the world? So in, in Europe, we still have um, avian influenza circulating. If mm -hmm. you look at the US, in the US, there is again avian influenza. If you look at, you know, some parts of the US, such as, for example, Alaska, mm -hmm. Alaska has seen significant amount of activity, not obviously in poultry, because yes. I, don't, I don't even know how much, you know, poultry operations they have <laughs> yeah. in Alaska, but among wild birds, there's been significant amount of activity. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate thing, however, is that uh, this virus has gone to Africa. It oh. has been uh, spotted in South America, mm -hmm. and also it's been spotted in um, Antarctica. So right. it seems that it's basically crisscrossing the world. Yeah, Antarctica, interesting. Yep. So again, so then that to me means more of a, a migratory pattern because yep. obviously we're not exporting, you know, poultry to Antarctica. So it's global. So then, what what are your thoughts about this becoming more of a, a pandemic type virus? So there's always um, uh, the, the the question of whether or not this is going going to ever become a pandemic virus or a pandemic potential virus. Mm -hmm. It's not quite there yet yeah. because this virus can replicate quite significantly and very effectively in avian species. Up until two years ago, I would have said there are probably a lot of avian species that are uh, very resistant to, to this virus. Mm -hmm. Docks, geese, yeah. more or less are quite resistant to highly pathogenic viruses, okay. highly pathogenic avian influenza viruses. But interestingly enough, this virus has proven all of us wrong because it has impacted ducks and geese to the extent that we would have never thought it could, right. but it has. So it seems that ducks and geese are also quite susceptible. Yeah. So in terms of the infectious dose for this virus, probably if you're looking at a very small infectious dose, so even with a few small number of viruses, it can infect avian species. Does it mean that it can infect mammals with the same sort of, you know, effectiveness? Yeah. The answer is we don't really know and probably not. Maybe right. it has become so well adapted to avian species that it doesn't have much appetite for adapting itself to mm. the same extent to mammals. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with avian influenza viruses or influenza viruses in general, I wouldn't actually, you know, underestimate them. The reason yeah. behind it is that these viruses can do a lot of tricks. Number one is that they can mutate themselves at the rate that uh, other viruses like SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19 cannot uh, mutate itself. Really? Uh, that's, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is that they can readily exchange their genetic material with other influenza viruses. So all of a sudden mm -hmm. you could have a completely brand new virus if yeah. it co-infect a host, let's say a pig, with two different kinds of viruses. All of a sudden you have 
a new viruses a new virus emerging yeah, from an uh, an intermediate host yeah. causing disease not only in that host but perhaps other host species perhaps even in humans so yeah. that's why i would say we, we should never underestimate the full breadth and extent of capacities and capabilities of influenza viruses yeah. it doesn't matter if this is a a uh, swine influenza virus or mm-hmm. an avian influenza virus. But right. the important, uh, the other important thing to remember is that I would say out of the five pandemics that have occurred over the last hundred years, mm-hmm. since 2018 up to now, at least four of them, or perhaps all five of them, have had, I would say, footprints of avian influenza viruses in them. Oh. I'm not saying that these were avian influenza viruses yeah. infecting humans, but when you look back, you would actually see bits and pieces of avian influenza viruses in the viruses that affected humans. Mm. So there is a potential for this virus to donate its genetic material right. to other viruses that could cause a pandemic in yeah. humans. Even so, in the in the even in the COVID virus as well. No. Oh no. Yeah. So this virus is is quite. Um, faithful to its own species so okay, it only yeah. mingles you know with <laughs> other influenza viruses it doesn't mingle with coronavirus oh i see okay so, but yeah oh, interesting okay well i mean that, that's interesting and, and somewhat slightly scary as well too when you when you paint that picture but hopefully you know research can keep ahead of that and i i, I certainly hope so yeah. uh, i i think you know if you ask any virologist um they would say with no degree of hesitation that a pandemic happening at some point mm-hmm. is not a matter of uh, if, it's just a matter of when it when, would happen. Right. And and we don't really know what sort of virus would cause a pandemic, but I think it's quite plausible to speculate that there are two major types of viruses that could cause pandemics, coronaviruses in mm-hmm. humans and influenza viruses, yeah. because these are respiratory viruses and they can easily be transmitted through air, and as a result of that, they can easily infect humans yeah. so i think you know it's it's um it's very wise and logical for us you know to do more research on these two viruses corona yeah. and influenza yeah so and that's probably a good segue in, into your sort of research with the avian influenza virus so what what does your lab do what are you working on right now or, or what what what's your interest um yeah, so in, in my lab, we work with avian influenza, obviously. Yes. And there are two different components and aspects to it. Component number one is to gain a better understanding of how this virus is transmitted. Mm-hmm. And there are multiple different ways of transmission. Um, you can, you know, just draw some lessons from the work that many of us did in during the time of COVID, looking mm-hmm. at how COVID-19 is transmitted, and the perpetual question of whether or not, you know, there is aerosol transmission of the virus, there is a fomite transmission yeah. of the virus. And what I mean by fomite, it would be inanimate objects, like, for example, the surface of a of a of a of a table, for yeah. example, or or handle of a door that could uh, carry some contamination uh, yeah. From someone who had the virus and just left, you know, some remnants of yeah, left the, left it, you know, on the door handle. Yeah, and and the question is the relative contribution of these routes of 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 transmission. So that's that's one aspect of our work: looking at aerosol transmission, looking at large droplet transmission, looking mm-hmm. at 
at, at water, looking at feed, looking at uh, feces in, mm -hmm. in chickens as a, as a route of transmission and determining you know, how well each of them contrib would contribute to transmission of the virus in poultry. Yeah. Um, and this could have you know, major consequences for the way that we handle um, influenza virus infections in the future. Because when you think about it, um, if the virus is transmitted via aerosol, then biosecurity measures would have to be put in place in order to combat aerosol transmission. Mm -hmm. If they are transmitted through fomites, for example, or through feed or water, then there are other types of biosecurity measures that should be put in place in order to combat that. So yeah. those are actually some of the areas that we are focusing on. And the other component, in my case, uh, and I'm very interested in immunology, is yeah. to look at development of vaccines against avian influenza and what can be done in order to boost immunity against uh, the circulating viruses and also mm -hmm. against viruses that haven't have yet to emerge and create platforms for vaccines, for vaccine development that would be adaptable to any potential emerging viruses now or in the future. Yeah. So on that topic then, are there any vaccines in development or are there any current vaccines available uh, what's what's the uh, research saying on that topic so uh, there is no vaccine available in canada mm -hmm. there is probably just one vaccine available in the u.s and uh, in europe the european union has uh, started looking into this very carefully as a matter of fact some countries are really leading the charge like mm -hmm. for example france or the netherlands especially mm -hmm. in the case of france they've just recently begun as of a month ago or so they've begun uh vaccinating ducks um okay. meat type ducks yeah. for yeah. um uh, with avian influenza vaccine and the avian influenza vaccine supposedly is going to be protective against this particular clay that is going around in the world yeah so that, that's 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 one aspect of it but it has a lot of other issues associated you know that uh, that countries are taking uh, I would say one step at a time type of um, type of an approach, approach. they're yeah. not really diving into it at the moment but mm. they're taking one step at a time okay all right and is there any collaboration you mentioned you mentioned France you mentioned Netherlands and then America is there any sort of collaborative body I guess the the economic impact isn't that high or devastating just yet or there should be one yeah i'm not quite sure if that exists but yeah. I, you know when you think about um you know what we experienced during the covid19 pandemic mm. what we learned you know we hopefully we learned something i'm not quite sure if we remember what we learned <laughs> well yeah. one of the things that we learned was the issue of uh, vaccine sovereignty, yeah. vaccine, you know, hoarding vaccines, vaccine nationalism, and all of those things. Yeah. My concern is that if something terrible happens and this virus starts spreading from poultry to mammals and from mammals to humans, are we going to have the same level of, you know, vaccine hoarding and vaccine nationalism that yeah. we saw uh, a few months or perhaps a couple of years ago? Yeah. There should be a body that would govern vaccine production, vaccine manufacturing, and then vaccine deployment. Yes. Unfortunately, that doesn't exist at the no. moment. And I think, you know, my concern is that we could be seeing some sort of a, some sort of a phenomenon reminiscent of what we saw during the pandemic, during mm. the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. yeah. If, it, if it becomes that, that degree of a problem. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. In terms of... Um you mentioned exposure to, to dogs, cats, and, and, and companion animals. 
what what can be done to potentially minimize or eliminate that you know that spread to to our pets so to speak or those, those are family members really yeah and i think you know that precisely because they are family members I, I would be concerned about you know some of the public health and individual health impacts of dogs and cats and how they could potentially play a role to, for transmission of the virus. So number of things that we can do are quite actually easy and simple. Number of one is that, and, and I think, you know, this is probably not very, you know, widely practiced in Canada, but uh, not feeding them uh, poultry or poultry, raw poultry and poultry products, yeah. which I think, you know, by and large is not necessarily a very common phenomenon in Canada. I think you know that that's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, minimize exposure to poultry and to wild birds in general, either live or dead, or even their feces, mm -hmm. because we don't exactly know what is the infectious dose for a dog or for a cat. But I think we need to err on the side of caution and make sure that they have very limited amount of exposure or no exposure, if that's possible at all, mm -hmm. uh, to live or dead poultry or their feces, because we already know that. Poultry or, or or avian species or mammals, for that matter, they shed the virus in their uh, excretion, yeah. like, for example, their feces, and also yeah. from um, whatever comes out of their oral or nasal cavity. Yeah. So as much as we could minimize that that level of interaction, I think you know we should be able to... We, we can never completely uh, prevent it from happening, but I think you know we can certainly minimize the risk you know to a level that is acceptable. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's good to know. And, and and sort of backyard poultry farming is is growing in popularity. Any any specific recommendations um, f for that aspect of the population? Yeah, so I think you know there are also a number of recommendations that I'm just going to you know put out there yeah. as 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 a as a non-practicing veterinarian. <laughs> okay. You know, so uh, number one is the fact that you know poultry backyard poultry are basically as susceptible as commercial poultry. One of the big things here is that in case of commercial poultry, because, you know, we are talking about an industry that is highly innovative and it's highly, you know, educated. They know the signs that they should be looking for, for poultry flocks that are uh, probably, you know, having avian influenza. So I think our poultry industry is quite well you know, informed and well-educated. Mm -hmm. Sometimes for owners of backyard poultry, they may not have the same level of education. Yeah, I would highly encourage backyard poultry owners to go to CFIA website. CFIA mm -hmm. has a lot of suggestions and recommendations for backyard poultry owners in terms of what to watch for, what to do if their poultry um, might be uh, suspected to have um, avian influenza and where to go and, and so on. Yeah. So I think that's number one. Number two is that exposure to wild birds would increase significantly the chances of catching avian influenza. So backyard poultry, if they have facilities for keeping their poultry indoors as opposed to outdoors, mm. I think that's also another component. The other thing is that we have good evidence to suggest that uh, when you have bodies of water close to a property, that could increase the risk of avian influenza. So if there are bodies of water that would attract wild birds like geese yes. and ducks and yeah. so forth, perhaps you know something needs to be done to make sure that those ducks and geese are not attracted to mm. those open bodies of water. Yeah, sort of migratory pathways, migratory birds. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And especially you know if you're under a migratory pathway, yeah. uh, and you know 
for sure, you know, that path has been used, you know, by by migratory birds that are bringing, uh, you yeah. know, avian influence. That then you might really need to think about, you know, your operations, especially, you know, l- making sure that the poultry are not exposed to to any of the droppings, you know, from those wild birds or mm-hmm. any of the mucosal secretions, you know, from their oral yeah. or nasal cavities. So those are some of the easy things that we can do. There's also, you know, the question about, you know, bird feeders and whether or not, you know, it's a good idea to have put a bird feeder, you know, for wild birds, you know, in close vicinity of poultry operations. The, yeah. My frank and candid answer to it is that if I were in that position, I wouldn't do it. But biologically speaking, songbirds or birds that are attracted to those feeders are not necessarily the, the birds that catch the virus or transmit the virus. Right. But with this virus, I would want to err on the side of caution. I, you know, we should never underestimate the virus and and leave anything to chances. Yeah. So two things then, uh, and just to backtrack, but you mentioned CFIA. For, for those all listeners who want certain what that acronym means, it's the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. And then secondly, is it is it a reportable disease? It is a reportable, reportable disease. disease. Yeah. So if a, a backyard poultry, you know, a farmer suspects that, uh, hopefully they have a veterinarian that they can report it to. If not, they can go to the CFIA website and seek assistance and get someone out there to come have a look, maybe do some testing just to see if it if it truly was avian influenza. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. So for poultry, domestic poultry, they have to go to CFIA. It is indeed a reportable disease. And for uh, wild birds, if any of the audience uh, finds uh, some dead birds, like Canada geese or ducks or or what have you, mm-hmm. uh, or seagulls for that matter, yeah. uh, they have to contact CWHC. And CWHC stands for Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperatives. And Dr. Brian Stevens, yeah. uh, that whom was mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast, uh, he's one of the pathologists who work for yes. CWHC. So CWHC should be contacted immediately and uh, they would provide further guidance. Okay, great. Thank you. So you mentioned songbirds and, and, and birds of that nature aren't very susceptible. Is it just the, the risk of exposure to, to viruses and virus loads, or do you think there's some sort of innate inherent immunity? You mentioned, you know, coming back to your Marek's disease, some, some poultry populations seem to be resistant to the disease and others not so much. What are, what are your thoughts on that? So that's a fantastic question. I have to admit, I don't really have a good answer to it. Uh, so it is quite possible that we are talking about you know, some, le- some level of immunity. We don't really know how that immunity is going to be imparted on songbirds. Could be some innate, and as you correctly pointed out, some inherent level of immunity that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, with respect to other viruses, other influenza viruses, yeah. in the past we would have said dogs versus chickens. Ducks are quite resistant to many highly pathogenic avian influenza viruses, whereas turkeys and chickens are highly susceptible. And in fact, the work done at the University of Alberta by one of our colleagues, Dr. Kathy McGore, a few years ago, almost 15 years ago, it showed very uh, convincingly that in ducks, they have an innate molecule Mm -hmm. that would render them quite resistant. Whereas in chickens, in their genome, they don't have that particular molecule, and that's why they're quite susceptible. Right. But interestingly enough, in humans, we also have the same molecules that dogs have. Oh, yeah. But we could be quite susceptible to the virus. Nevertheless, uh, it appears that at least in dogs and chickens, the difference between the two species is related to presence of only one molecule. Right. 
But that's only for other viruses, not for the virus that is currently going around the globe. Okay. In terms of songbirds, I'm assuming that there must be something very similar to what we've seen in ducks versus chickens. Mm. So probably they have something that would allow them to catch the virus, but don't necessarily you know, show clinical signs of the virus, right. or perhaps they don't even catch the virus. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So maybe that's another era of interest uh, <laughs> and research for, for whoever's out there listening and wants a, a project, perhaps. Uh, well, Dr. Dr. Shreve, it was definitely informative, definitely interesting. Thank you for, for coming on to our podcast with us. And any closing remarks before I, I end the uh, show? No, I think uh, we've covered most of the salient aspects of avian influenza, and it's been a pleasure having a, having a conversation with you. Yes, thank, thank you. thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Our pleasure. And we must have you back at some point just to give us another update, you know, see where things are at perhaps in the new year. By all means, my pleasure. Great. Thank you so much. This episode of Vet Sessions is generously sponsored by OVC Pet Trust. OVC Pet Trust, founded in 1986 at the Ontario Veterinary College, is Canada's first charitable fund dedicated to improving and advancing companion animal health and well-being. OVC Pet Trust supports innovative discoveries, education, and healthcare that improve the prevention, diagnosis, and treatments of diseases of pets. Learn more about OVC Pet Trust at www.petrust.ca or connect with them on Instagram at OVC Pet Trust. And thank you so much again uh, for our listeners today to tune in, uh, for tuning in. If you have any questions or ideas for our show, please send us an email to vetsessions at hotmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at vetsessions. Take care, everyone. See you next time.